0: Hey everyone, I hope this podcast and my blog and books have been helpful resources for you and will continue to be. But if you've been struggling with a chronic health problem and are feeling stuck, consider coming to work with my team and me at the California Center for Functional Medicine. We work with patients all over the U.S. and have experience treating a wide range of conditions including GI problems, autoimmunity, hypothyroidism, cognitive mood and behavioral issues, weight gain and metabolic dysfunction, and more our unique model teams, clinicians, with nurse practitioners and health coaches, all of whom are trained in my ADAPT framework approach to provide a high level of care to our patients. This means more support between appointments, personalized guidance on diet, lifestyle, and behavior change, a cutting edge patient portal with 24/7 access to your labs and records, handouts and resources to guide your protocols, and a team of practitioners working together on your case. We're currently accepting new patients, so if you'd like to learn more, visit chriskresser.com slash become a patient. Hey everybody, it's Chris Cresser. Welcome to another episode of Revolution Health Radio. This week, I'm excited to welcome Diana Rogers back on the podcast. Diana is a real food nutritionist living on a working organic farm near Boston, Massachusetts, and she runs a vegetable and meat CSA, community supported agriculture program. She's the author of two best-selling cookbooks and runs a clinical nutrition practice. She writes and speaks about the intersection of optimal human nutrition, environmental sustainability, animal welfare, and social justice. She's also the producer of the Sustainable Dish podcast, interviewing experts in the environmental and health movement. And her new film project, which we're going to talk about on the show, called Sacred Cow, examines the environmental, nutritional, and ethical case for better meat. So uh, I wanted to talk to Diane about the recent study that was published, I'm sure many of you have heard of, the Eat Lancet study, which advocates a diet very low in animal products, both for nutritional and health reasons and also environmental reasons. So we're gonna take a closer look at that study and see if the claims that it makes are actually uh, supported by the evidence and by our understanding of the environmental impact of consuming meat And then we're going to talk about other topics like lab meat and the meat tax and then um, uh, the power of film for reaching a wider audience with some of these messages. So um, I hope you enjoy the podcast as much as I did. And let's dive in. Diana, thanks so much for joining me again on the podcast.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: So we have a lot to talk about. It, yeah. it seems like this is um an annual event where there's um some big news story that comes out or study that's published that demonizes meat and animal foods and purports to be the final nail in the coffin mm-hmm. uh, for uh you know anybody who's eating animal products and in fact as as you know I just went on the Joe Rogan show, uh, my third appearance there to debate Dr. Joel Kahn about the, the merits of animal foods in the diet and, and eating a vegan diet and spent a lot of hours preparing for that and wrote a lot of articles. And, you know, the debate itself was almost four hours long and uh, admittedly, I was a little tired out after that experience. Uh-huh. And um, I just couldn't muster the energy and strength to write a rebuttal to the Lancet um, paper that was published. Um, but you did and several other people did. And so I'd love to dive in and talk about that as well as, you know, just stepping back a little bit and, and discussing the, uh, some of the environmental Impacts or the, the purpo- purported environmental impacts of eating meat, and what's wrong with the traditional narrative there? Because I didn't get to talk much on the Joe Rogan mm-hmm. show about that, and and then you know some of the difficulties of of addressing this, and how I know you, you've been working on a film to try to get this message out um, that we've talked about. So why don't we just start first with the Eat Lancet? paper since this is what's really making the rounds now and bringing this to the to the forefront of everybody's attention again Mm -hmm.
1: yeah definitely so there's uh they were really attacking red meat on a nutritional and environmental uh angle so um i know you're arguments on, on the Joe Rogan podcast were purely nutritional. Um, I think that, you know, the, the main narratives are always nutrition environment and ethics and, uh, ethics were kept out of the eat Lancet very long paper that took me quite a long time to read. <laughs> yeah. um, but there's definitely a lot of misinformation in there about meat. I mean, they're using observational studies to, to, Basically, tell us that we can not have any processed meats at all, lumping them all together, and that we can only eat less than half an ounce of red meat per day. We can only have less than one ounce of chicken per day, and um, but yet we can have eight teaspoons of sugar per day. Yeah,
0: yeah, and and plenty of corn and rice and wheat. Let's talk a little bit, I think, you know, most of my listeners are pretty familiar with the nutritional arguments mm-hmm. and, you know, I've, I and others have written a lot about that. And, you know, most recently my, in preparation for the Rogan show, I published a, a whole cornerstone page with everything you you need in, to debunk the nutritional argument. So um, that's at com slash Rogan, if you want to look it up. But I, I just want to briefly talk about the nutrient density of this Eat Lancet mm-hmm. diet because um, if you just look at it from that single perspective, nutritionally, you'll see very quickly that it, that it falls short. And our body needs micronutrients to to function properly. And if a, if a proposed diet doesn't Um, offer those micronutrients in sufficient quantities. And I think we can safely say it's not a good diet for humans to follow. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, I don't want to spend a ton of time on this, so I'm just going to go through this really briefly. And then I want to uh, switch over to talking more about some of the environmental Mm -hmm. uh, issues because that's, I know, uh, an area where you have a lot of expertise and, and I really love what you have to say there. So Zoe Harcombe did an analysis and I think you had mentioned, Diana, that Marty Kendall did too. So we can talk about that. But Zoe's analysis is it's um, not publicly accessible. Uh, you have to be a subscriber to see it, but I, I can share this this part of it. She analyzed the Eat Lancet diet using um, food tables and found that it was well below the RDA for several nutrients, B12, retinol, vitamin D, vitamin K2, which wasn't even studied separately, but um, 71% of the k in the diet came from broccoli. So we know that there's, you know, probably very little K2 in the diet, um, sodium, potassium, calcium, and iron. So that's a lot of the essential nutrients that we need. And in some cases it was providing less than 20% of the RDA of those nutrients. So Mm -hmm. to me, that's, that's pretty much case closed, um, on that basis alone. And then we can look at all the other problems that observational studies on, you know, red meat and all of that entail. And I, I just think there's really nothing to be alarmed about. Um, the study doesn't add any new evidence that, that meat and animal products is harmful are harmful.
1: Not at all. And, and another thing she didn't mention in her, um, paper or her review, but, um, is the conversion rate of some of, uh, vitamins like beta carotene to vitamin A and almost half the population can't make that conversion easily. And so even though on paper, it may show that uh, the vitamin A was adequate, it's actually not.
0: It's the same with all, all of these other nutrients. I actually mm-hmm. wrote an article. Speci- I, I addressed this in my article on nutrient density. You can find it at the at the chriscrosser.com slash roganlink. Iron it, uh, 94% of the iron in the Eat Lancet diet is from plant-based forms of iron, and we know that heme iron that you get from animal products is orders of magnitude better absorbed than most plant forms of iron. And same with calcium, mm-hmm. better better absorbed from from most in most cases from animal products, and you know virtually every other nutrient, zinc long-chain omega-3 fats only found in animal products. So um, it's really, yeah, that, that conversion and bioavailability piece is almost never addressed in these kinds of studies.
1: Right. And you also write a lot about B12 and how these um, plant-based B12 analogs mm-hmm. actually increase your need for real B12.
0: Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, so really nothing to see here uh, Mm -hmm. from a nutritional perspective, but part of why it's making such a big splash is, you know, in addition to the highly coordinated launch campaign that is driven by, you know, celebrity, you know, very wealthy celebrity type of people who are behind this. Is the the argument that you know not only do we should we avoid red meat and animal products from for these nutritional reasons, but they're destroying the planet? So let, mm-hmm. let's really dive into that and unpack that um, from the perspective of the paper. I think you wrote an article, something like you know twenty reasons or 20, mm-hmm. 20 points against this. So we don't have to go through all of those, but no. let's let's uh, cover the highlights.
1: Yeah. Well, I think the number one thing that people need to understand is that we can't just assume that if we're not raising animals that it will automatically free up land for more crops. So Mm -hmm. agricultural land isn't uh, interchangeable. Most of the agricultural land on the globe is not suited for cropping due to water availability. It's too rocky. It's too steep. So yeah. I think a lot of people, especially that haven't traveled much, you know, look around and just see lo- lo- nice flat land and just assume <laughs> that everywhere in the world is like that. And I mean, a picture, Iceland, Norway, picture many parts of Africa, um, Mongolia. I mean, there's just so many places that really will only support grazing animals and not wheat and corn and soy production and so that's a huge thing that we need to consider and if we are to not graze animals on that land not only will we lose that for food production but the land will also desertify because we just don't have those wild herds in the numbers that we used to any longer and ruminants are actually incredibly beneficial their impact on the land uh, helps increase water holding capacity can you know, their grazing actually stimulates new growth in a good way. So you can't just have these, you know, fenced off acres with nothing on it. You actually need grazing animals as part of uh, healthy grassland ecosystems.
0: Yeah, that's a point that is really misunderstood. I, I mean, I, I see a little bit more discussion about it, uh, certainly at least in in our realm. But I'm having a hard time thinking of mainstream article that really did justice to that point. Do you know of any?
1: Well, I've written a few blog posts on it and uh, have talked a lot about it. I think Alan Savory does a really good job. Yeah. In his, you know, the Savory Institute work that they've done and also his Ted talk. But I think that's the, definitely the number one point that people need to understand. And it's funny because I'm, I'm working on a book as well on this topic and my publisher actually has published a ton of um, vegan books, and he was skeptical. And once he read my environmental argument and specifically wrapped his head around this very topic, mm-hmm. I won him over. So I That's think. Amazing. Yeah, people just, you know, because we're so divorced from nature, you and I've talked about this before, just offline, but that's the number one problem uh, is that people just have no idea how food is produced and and what makes a healthy ecosystem. And a lot of the vegans will, you know, the ones who do accept that not all land can be cropped, just want it turned over to be rewilded. Mm -hmm. So let's just crop it, everything we can possibly crop, and then we'll just rewild all the pasture land with deer or some, something cute, you know, but then what are we going to do? Because we don't, we've eliminated all the predators. I mean, even in the town I live in outside of Boston, we have a massive deer problem yeah. uh, and nobody wants hunting because they don't want to see, you know, dead animals on their beautiful hikes around, you know, the conservation land here in my town. And if we, if we eliminate, the predators, um, we need to be responsible for how these populations of wild animals are managed. And so the other option, if we're not gonna hunt them, I I suppose, would be to bring back wolves. Um, I don't know how I don't think that will go over well. (laughs) (laughs) I I don't know how my, you know, waiting for the bus uh, in my town, you know, with wolves swirling around at dawn will go over. So it's, it quickly backs them into a very uncomfortable corner
0: there. Mm-hmm. And I think another thing that you point out that people don't realize is that 90% of what cattle eat is, f- at least in a natural <laughs> grazing state, not, not in you know, CAFO mm-hmm. type of arrangement, is forage and plant leftovers that, that humans can't eat.
1: Yeah, right. Exactly. And even in, I mean, I'm not an advocate for feedlot beef, but I think one thing people don't understand about even cattle that are raised on feedlots is uh, that are finished on feedlots rather, is that they're not raised on feedlots. So 85% of the beef cattle in the U.S. are actually grazing on land that can't be cropped. And even if they do end up on a feedlot, 90% of their total um, intake is non-edible food mm-hmm. um, to humans. And so they're eating, for example, soybean cakes, but those that's left over from the soybean oil industry. Right. Um, they're eating large amounts of distiller's grains, um, lots of foods that would normally emit greenhouse gases and decompose anyway. Uh, ranchers are also grazing cattle on spent wheat and corn fields. So, th- you know, that corn would just decompose and emit greenhouse gases either way. Yeah. So why not run it through a ruminant gut and make protein out of it?
0: And fertilizer, as you pointed exactly, out. Exactly. <laughs>
1: exactly.
0: Yeah. I mean, that it, it, it's it's so much more nuanced. This is a theme that will probably come up in our conversation a lot is part, and, and I know Rob Rob and I commiserate about it, and I yes. know he, you, you do as well with him, but the, the vegan narrative is so simple in a lot of ways. And it plays into a lot of assumptions, even if they're wrong, that um, you don't really have to explain to people. It just, mm-hmm. you know, it, people have heard things over and over again, you know, meat is, is bad for the environment. Uh, it's bad for us. Therefore eliminate meat from your diet and the food system and everyone will be healthier. I mean, that, that's so easy to understand. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but the, you know, as Rob has pointed out many times, the counter argument is, is nuanced and complex and, and, um, is not quite as simple to understand and requires that you actually pay attention and, and to some of these finer points and I think that is one of the challenges that we that, that we face in, in this in this struggle, but it's not incomprehensible I mean if you just comp- if you just get a, a few of the simple points like this, it starts to become a lot easier to understand
1: definitely and Oh, I was going to say, too, that, you know, there's a lot, 50% of the carcass of a cow is not eaten, um, but used Mm -hmm. for other uh, industry, you know, uses. So we've got leather, we've got insulin, we've got... um, Footballs. We've we've got uh, lots of lots of medical applications, fertilizer. So eliminating all animals from our food system. There's a great study. I think I sent you this morning um, that was published on PNAS about you know what would happen if we eliminated all animals from our food system. So the greenhouse gas emissions would only decrease by about two and a half percent but our overall caloric intake would actually go way up and our nutrient deficiencies would go up. So we already have a problem in our culture where we're over consuming calories and not getting enough nutrients. So we would just be making the problem worse for about a 2% emission reduction.
0: And that, that, those numbers don't assume any improvement in how cattle are managed, right? Right,
1: that was just typical cattle
0: right so exactly. if we if we actually made improvements in how cattle are managed, do you think there could be a net sequestration of carbon Oh
1: definitely, so there's been some research coming out of Michigan State showing um the difference between continuous grazing and what they term adaptive multi paddock grazing, which is uh, similar to alan savory's method, so basically yeah. when you intensively uh, graze an area and then move the cattle off quickly. So this is how, for example, herds in Africa are naturally moved because of predator pressure. Uh, So it's it's much worse for the land to have, let's say if you have a 10 acre field to have 100 cattle on on that land for the whole summer, as opposed to tightly bunching them and moving them frequently and allowing that land to rest, because that's when carbon gets sequestered um, in the regrowth phase of the grass. And so the grass is going through photosynthesis, it's pulling down carbon and actually exuding carbon uh, sugars to bacteria and to fungal networks that are then passing that grass nutrients. So the, the fungus is actually mining rocks um, and getting the minerals from, from that and feeding it to the grass. And that's how carbon is sequestered and that process is most effective and actually is a net carbon gain when cattle are managed in this way. So that's why I like to say it's not the cow, it's the how, because there's just many different ways of raising cattle, just like there are many different ways of, of growing broccoli, right? We can do it in a monocrop system or we can do it in a, you know, more rotational system where we're integrating it with other crops. And what we need is less monocrops because that's just not how uh, healthy ecosystems work. And, 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 uh, farmland is not natural. Like when you fly over the United States, all those squares you're looking down at, are that's not <laughs> nature, that's man doing that.
0: Yeah. So yeah, I, I know from your article, and you, you did also a podcast with Frank uh, Mitlohner, mm-hmm. how you pronounce it. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll include a link to that in the show notes because I think people should listen to that. its a, He's an expert in greenhouse gas emissions and animal mm-hmm. agriculture. And you guys talk a lot about What's really going on there and why some of the convent, you know, typical numbers that are thrown around are not accurate. And mm-hmm. if, if anyone's interested in a deeper dive, I'd definitely recommend listening to that.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So, you know, gr- greenhouse gas from beef cattle represents two, it just as it's currently done with no improvements, like you mm-hmm. just mentioned, is 2% of emissions. And mm-hmm. by contrast, transportation is 27%. <laughs> so, how, yet when I go to WeWork, which I have an office at. Oh gosh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you probably know this, so I'm about oh, no. to, but some of my listeners might not know yeah. um, that WeWork is a company that has committed to this this idea that eating a vegetarian diet will save the planet. And mm-hmm. So I so I was there yes uh, uh, two days ago on Monday and they have meatless Monday at WeWork and uh, where they serve veggie burgers in the main lounge and then they print these cards that they post around there uh, around the off- office that says you know if everyone was just a vegetarian for I can't remember one or two days a week we would save you know five it would save 450 uh, million pounds of carbon dioxide emissions. And and again, this goes back to the simplicity thing. You know, most people get in the elevator, they see that and they're like, oh, wow. Okay. I'm, I guess I should become a vegetarian. <laughs> so so yeah. how does this continue? Like, how, you know, I mean, it's not surprising that there's a disconnect between r- actual science and what we see in the media. We know that from nutrition world and everything else. But, mm-hmm. wh- you know, how do you think this got started? Was there a lot of mis- misunderstanding initially, which led to these numbers and then later science kind of brought more clarity or is what, you know, what do you think? How, how have we gotten here?
1: Well, I, I actually just released an amazing podcast on Tuesday of this week. So maybe you could link to that one too with um, a guy from Brussels, Frederick Leroy. I, oh, I, can't I, pronounce I read his. some of
0: his papers. You sent oh, a while so back before fantastic. the Rogan debate.
1: Yeah. So, so his opinion is that meat is unfairly absorbing a lot of our worries about the, our health, our state of our health and the environment um, because meat is so powerful um, and and can absorb it, but it's unfairly the scapegoat for our stressors, right? So everyone just, it's, it's much easier for us to blame meat than it is to, you know, perhaps uh, look at our transportation industry and, right. um, you know, be uncomfortable about that. I mean, you know, the, the main funder of that set. Uh, paper has a private jet and, you know, that transportation was never mentioned in the E-Lancet
0: paper. I read, I don't know if this is accurate, but I read something about how just the the jet trips uh, for Mm -hmm. the tour you know (laughs) would have a bigger impact on the environment than the diet changes that they were talking exactly, about.
1: Exactly. And so in livestock's long shadow, uh, that's when a lot of this all started uh, the misinformation about the emissions with cattle. And unfortunately, when they did that study, what they did was they looked at all the emissions, um, the the full life cycle of, uh, of a an, ruminant animals. They looked at, you know, production of the feed, all the transportation, all the emissions, everything. And when they compared that to transportation, they only looked at tailpipe exhaust. So they didn't even factor in, you know, transportation, for example, in the transportation um, numbers. And so when they, you look at the global numbers at, you know, emissions of cattle versus transportation, you're looking at apples to oranges there. So you're Mm. looking at the full life cycle of a a beef uh, animal compared to just the tailpipe emissions from transportation. So that's not fair. Um, And also in other countries, the percentage is a little bit higher, but that's in places where maybe transportation plays a lesser role, where there are less cars per cow. And so the, the relative. Emissions may be higher, but that's, again, not taking into account the fact that cattle can actually sequester carbon and and many, many other factors. And so the authors of Livestock's Long Shadow did reduce their numbers, I think, from 18 to 14 percent and did admit that their numbers were still off because of the transportation. There are no global lifecycle papers on transportation But yet that 18 percent, or I've heard even 50 percent. I don't even know where that number comes from. But that's the 50 percent is the number that's often cited by this group called Green Mondays, and they are the ones that um, have worked with Berkeley to make all of the uh, government meetings meatless on Mondays. That organization I've looked into, and they're actually funded by an organization out of Singapore that produces plant-based pork. right? And yeah. so there's a lot, you know, it, the environment and the ethics and, and even the nutrition argument is very convenient for large food companies to profit because processing means profit.
0: Well, let's talk a little bit about that. And since we're on the topic and I, I, I do want to come back to some of the other mm-hmm. ways that an animal you know, animal-based um, food system or a food system that includes animals can actually benefit biodiversity mm-hmm. uh, things like that. So right. yeah, follow the money. Uh, we talk about that a lot on this show. You know, I, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but on the other hand, you'd be very naive and misguided to assume that money doesn't play a big role in many of, in setting food policy And coming up with these laws, it always has, and it probably always will. And if you look at the Eat Lancet diet, I think this was from Marty Kendall's analysis, um, you'll find that 32% of calories come from rice, wheat, and corn, and 14% come from unsaturated oils. So these are highly processed foods people aren't eating, we're not talking about corn on a cob. <laughs> and
1: oh, or wheat berries, wheat, right? Wheat like-
0: berries, you know, <laughs> <laughs> or, or even, right, like in, in some cases, yeah. just the whole grain rice. We're talking about, you know, highly processed corn and wheat and rice derivatives, and then highly processed industrial seed oils that comprise almost 50% of calories. And mm-hmm. who does that benefit? This study was sponsored by... A basically hit list a team of
1: processed food com- uh, you know,
0: global processed food companies, DuPont, PepsiCo, Shannon, Nestle. D- Nestle, Cargill, Kellogg's. Uh, so like food and agricultural companies that make their money by selling processed and refined foods. And um, so that's, that's very revealing. And then the other thing that Marty Kendall pointed out, which is directly tied to this is that, this diet, when you work out the macronutrient ratios, it ends up being low in protein and, you know, moderate in, in fat and carbohydrates. And there are really no foods in nature that fit that profile or very few. You know, you have breast milk and acorns, I think are the two yeah. that he pointed out. And this is a, a recipe for that, that macronutrient mix of low protein and then, you know, higher fat and carbohydrate is a, is a recipe for Highly disaster. palatable and rewarding yeah. foods. So if you look at the foods that are on this list that fit that profile, they're things like chocolate milk, potato chips, French toast, waffles, ice cream, pancakes. Kit uh, Yeah, biscuits, Kit Kat, <laughs> Twix, chocolate chip cookies, pie crust. I mean- yeah. Are you kidding me? Like yes. this is the macronutrient profile that we should be following. Oh, who does that benefit? All of the companies that, process, that, that make these processed foods. So it's really revealing when you look at it from that perspective.
1: I know. And I think it's really irresponsible to promote a diet that's about 10% in protein when we have, I mean, just in America, more than 50% of, of Americans are metabolically broken and, and really benefit from much higher protein levels. In their
0: protein. And we know that of all the macronutrients, protein is the one that has the biggest impact on satiety. Which exactly. means it will it will reduce the likelihood that people overeat, which uh, many Americans are doing. And yeah. you know, any clinician or dietitian like yourself who's worked with people knows if they're struggling with weight, putting them on a higher protein diet is is probably the most important thing you can do. And there's even some you know. If you look at the studies on low carb diets, I think probably one of the reasons, if if not one of the main reasons that they're so effective, is that they're higher in protein.
1: Yeah, and you know I have to say too. So I actually have uh, recently been following Marty Kendall's Nutrient Optimizer diet and personally, just as an experiment to try to. Maximize my micronutrients and I eat really well. I eat, I live on a a farm. I I have a lot of education in uh, nutrient density. I I have access to all of these foods. It's really hard to get all your micronutrients in a day, but it's really easy to feel uh satiated when you have a high percentage of of animal protein in your diet so whether that's you know oysters which i know i can beat uh his leaderboard if i just see a ton of oysters yeah. in one day that's right that's right uh, but uh you know liver and and then just you know regular old animal protein um filling the rest of your diet with with colorful vegetables is is the way to go, but it's still, I still was low, actually believe it or not in iron. Um, even with all of the protein I was uh, consuming, I've been consuming on this diet.
0: Yeah, I, I'm always talking to my patients about that. A lot of, especially if they're favoring like chicken and fish and, you know, and not mm-hmm. eating shellfish or organ meats, is that some muscle meats are not that high in iron. So, right. you know, it's organ meats and shellfish that are really the powerhouses from that perspective. Yeah, mm-hmm. and this brings up another question about bioavailability, right? Because right. we've both talked about this a lot. It's not at all the case that protein from uh, plant sources like legumes is going to be absorbed in the same way that protein is uh, absorbed from animal foods like meat and and eggs and fish and and dairy products there, there's mm-hmm. something called the there are various scoring systems that are used in in the scientific literature to assess the bioavailability of protein and no matter what scoring system you use, animal proteins come out ahead of plant. Proteins and usually by a very large margin.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I mean, trying to get your protein from beans and rice, you know, if you're trying to do the combining in order to get the right profile of amino acids, you would. So I did the calculation. So, in order to get the right amount, uh, the same amount of protein you would get from a four ounce steak, which is 181 calories, yeah. you'd need to eat 12 ounces of beans and a cup of rice. So that's 638. Calories and 122 grams of carbs, and you're yeah. still not getting the same beautiful profile of um, amino acids that you can get from this 181 calorie piece of steak.
0: Right, which goes back to you know Marty Kendall's point, where you, mm-hmm. you're 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 basically if you're low if you eat a low protein diet, it's going to be a high, much higher calorie diet in most yeah. cases for the and reason. higher
1: carb and just I mean just setting people down the road towards metabolic disorder
0: yeah so let's go back now. I, I want to finish up talking mm-hmm. about the impact of animals on the food system because I think there are still some other uh, points that are that are worth going into here that a lot of people may not be familiar with so mm-hmm. you know <laughs> one is you know we, we talked about how not all land is suitable for grazing, but let's let's talk about the f- kind of maybe the flip side of that is is what happens when you use a lot of land for Crops like corn and and rice and soy mm-hmm. and wheat, you no.
1: Right. I mean, a lot of you know, and, and and most of this is not organically grown and and using right. you know animals to to graze and and all of that. So so the large majority of our monocrops are you know, heavily sprayed with chemicals that um, leave uh, residue on the leaves that we're ingesting um, and also completely sterilize the soil and um, create runoff that then, you know, ends up in the Mississippi River and creating massive dead zones in the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, So there are just so many problems with monocropping the way we're doing it today. We're, you know, have created and insect apocalypse. <laughs> and um, so there, we're, we've lost pollinators, we're killing fish, which in turn then kills the animals that need to be eating the fish. And so we're, we're annihilating biodiversity, both above and below ground. And um, so one teaspoon of soil has, you know, more microbes in it than all of the humans on earth. And when we spray it with things like Roundup, we're completely killing all of that. And mm-hmm. so we've um, we've destroyed just so much of our soil, and so much of it is also just blowing away and running off. So I mean, the Dust Bowl was a good example of that, and, and we're headed for another one right now. So, according to the United Nations, um, we have about 60 harvests left at the rate we're going. And that, yeah, I think this absolutely- is
0: alarming. This is on yeah. the, this is like a an emergency thing on the level, you know, that's part of climate change, of course, but also you know, on the same level as potential for water shortages that just people, I just, I don't think are, I mean, some people are aware of it, of course, but Mm -hmm. it's, you know, we're talking about some very, very serious implications here.
1: Mm -hmm. And when the soil is compacted and we're constantly just, you know, stripping away the biodiversity of the soil, when rain comes, it just washes all the topsoil away into rivers. And that's Mm -hmm. how we get these really cloudy rivers because rivers, you know, in general should be clear. And in a system where we have healthy ruminants, you know, managed in a proper way, the soil acts like a sponge and can actually hold a lot more water from rain instead of allowing it to just wash off and take the topsoil with it. Mm -hmm. Um, So, and it's, you know, my husband um, is so into topsoil that even we have two border collies and they sleep in our mudroom at night. And I, they come in, you, you know, they're black and white, but they're their white parts are, you know, really dirty looking at the end of the day. Um, And in the morning, they're totally white and they leave like massive amounts of soil on the ground. And Mm -hmm. I literally have, I sweep it up and I put it in the field because that's how like topsoil he
0: is. Well, yeah. And how precious it is too. Exactly.
1: Exactly. And just nobody is looking at our um, farmland as a biological system. It's been reduced um, to this, you know, reductionist chemical but let's produce as many calories as possible, which is ruining our health and our our land.
0: Mm-hmm. Let's talk a little bit also about how ruminants can improve biodiversity. I mean, we touched on that just mm-hmm. briefly, but you know, water is a big issue. And I know that cattle can improve water holding capacity of the land and that has a whole bunch of different downstream effects.
1: Yeah. And also, too, I mean, even the worst managed cattle on, you know, overgrazed grass is still a better system than um, monocrop grain. So you still I mean, and and even in a better system, you have got butterflies, you've got birds, you've got um, all kinds of life above ground and below ground that are, you know, team that the whole goal, what people don't realize is that we want as much life as possible. And our current system is actually making sure that we're annihilating as much life as possible. So if we look at the extinction process that's been happening over the last 50 years, it's, again, it's something completely alarming. I, I know, you know, silent spring came out and people were all up in arms and, but the solution is not a vegetarian solution. So, you know, diet for a small planet is outdated information. And what we need is more better cattle, not no cattle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not the cow, it's the how. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, and not only that, too, you know, another thing I, I brought up is what these, you know, rich white people in Sweden were not paying attention to is that, you know, livestock are really important to the majority of people living in poverty in the world, um, yeah. in places where, you know, are you going to, you know, what are you going to do in Kenya where it's super arid, you know, and you know, the Maasai um, have been herding cattle for ever and ever. And we're going to tell them that they need to go grow soybeans, like right. with what, what <laughs> seeds. So they have to go buy them from Monsanto. Where are they going to get the water to irrigate? Yeah. Where are they going to get the fertilizer if they can't have animals? So, I, I think it's you know border, bordering on racist to you know have a you know grain heavy diet as a global policy for the entire world.
0: But we can just make more Cheetos.
1: Exactly. Exactly.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm. I'm. That's probably the plan. You know, part of the plan here. It's really. Well, and to
1: get them reliant on our aid, I mean, we're already ruining, you know, Haiti with our rice, you know, that we're giving to them. We've ruined their local economies. We've ruined their health. You know, now rice is a much higher percentage of their diet. Um, They don't, you know, very few Haitians are actually growing their own food anymore. And it's a really great way that uh, we can control governments. So that's, I mean, that's a whole nother thing that, you know, we don't have to get too much into, but it really makes me mad the idea that, you know, we're taking away people's innate ability to be self-reliant.
0: Not to mention the very clearly documented health impacts that are observed Mm -hmm. when traditional peoples adopt Western food. Exactly,
1: exactly. And and, um, I have a Uh, An image on my post, so the the Canadian government decided that they knew best uh, advising uh, a local Inuit population that they should be eating a Mediterranean diet, Mm -hmm. Uh, which I think is just, I mean, this one image of this igloo showing all of their nutrient-dense traditional foods in the red category and bananas and oranges and orange juice. In the green category, I mean, that just sums up exactly how wrong we've gotten our dietary advice just in this one image.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And if if those poor kids start following that diet, they're going to become morbidly obese. Um, Yeah. And and this is seen. This has been documented in so many different areas where traditional populations start to follow the government-sponsored Diet, including Native Americans in the in the U.S., so like the Pima, uh, for example. So, uh, you know, let's 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 talk about some of the other proposals that are floating around that are all based on this idea that meat is bad for us nutritionally and bad for the environment, which, uh, as I hope we've shown in this podcast, is, is misguided, and others. But mm. why not just make meat in a lab? You know, let let's say, let's say you accept that meat animal protein is more bioavailable. And so we do need meat, uh, which some people seem to have accepted, but right. then they, then why not just grow it in a lab and, and. Reduce you know, suffering. Yeah. Reduce suffering and, and you reduce greenhouse be gas emissions, and, you know, and all, all of that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, 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 and of course make, Billions of dollars from the companies that are successful doing that, yeah. That's
1: another I thing I'm, with
0: that per se, but yeah, <laughs> there's some financial motivation there, perhaps.
1: Yeah, I'm so glad I don't live where you live. I was actually just out there a couple of days ago, and I'm like, so happy that I'm not living there because that's yeah. like the hotbed of all of this. Um, sure. so you just have
0: to be a hermit like me and live up on my hilltop and, and
1: just go to yeah, WeWork again, yeah, mad, mad at WeWork okay. in the halls <laughs> and the elevators, <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, it's really interesting, the lab meat thing, because I had a woman on my podcast about a year and a half ago, who was a big, uh, vegan animal rights person telling me how great lab meat was. Um, and I asked her if she knew how it was made and she had no idea, but Mm -hmm. she was like, she's like a really big deal, um, animal rights activist and very vocal about how lab meat is a good solution. Yeah. And interestingly, most vegans actually won't even accept it because you're using fecal bovine serum in order to make it, which um, is not, you know, quote unquote, vegan anyway. Um, But what folks aren't realizing, number one, is that it relies on this horrible monocrop system, which is ruining our environment and, you know, a completely inefficient way of producing food on so many levels. But then they, you know, the, the lifestyle assessments I've read are a lot based on projections because they haven't built the bioreactors yet, so they're they're making a lot of assumptions. But even the assumptions are so bad that the energy required in order to transform what they're using right now as the substrate, so corn and soy, sometimes wheat, into protein. The amount of energy required for that is enormous. And when we have animals that can actually just do this on their own without, you know, having to be plugged into an outlet is, you know, really amazing. Plus, what they're not taking into consideration is the amount of antibiotics that they'll need to prevent uh, bacterial overgrowth because they're growing these at, you know, just the perfect temperature for meat to grow. But of course, that's also the perfect temperature for bacteria for to grow else. as well. Yeah cancerous cells, all these things. Um, They had not figured out how to, you know, striate the meat with fats. You know, there's a lot of inputs that we're running out of that you need in order, you know, there's a lot of minerals that are being mined in war-torn countries that, you know, actually the U.S. military is like guarding these mines in order to get those raw materials, in order to pump it into these um, cellular cellular meat company um, facilities. So, The whole system is energetically ridiculous and it's not even causing less harm. So that's my big argument, too, is that, you know, when you look at how many lives are lost from the loss of biodiversity of, of, you know, taking a native ecosystem, plowing it up to... Make it into a cornfield and then spraying it to make sure that nothing other than corn, not even mice or anything, can grow there. You know, the, the amount of life lost for that system versus one animal, one large ruminant animal. A, a cow can provide almost 500 pounds of meat. You know, I just don't think the trade offs are worth it at all from an ethical or environmental perspective.
0: Another situation where the devil is in the details, right? You know, on on the face of it, lab meat sounds, hey, why not? You know, like if we can do that and we can make it taste the same. And, you know, but as and I uh, clearly that including that, you know, uh, woman that you interviewed on your podcast, that that was kind of the level that she was approaching it on, you know, without mm -hmm. actually looking into the details. It sounds pretty good on the surface. So let's, you know, why not advocate it? But then mm-hmm. when you look into it, you find it's a little more complicated.
1: Yeah. Um, I've been really loving The Wizard and the Prophet. Rob uh, said that over. I read me. that
0: just recently. Yeah, I think people are
1: reading Yes, exactly. So I'm yeah. thanking you. I'm yes. thanking you for the chain because I uh have my hands on it. And I've been not only reading the book, but then when I'm in my car or at the gym, I'm listening to it. So, mm-hmm. um, so- it's really fantastic. And I think that that is at the crux of what we're dealing with right now. Do we look at this, what some would call Luddite um, perspective of of nature through vote? Or do we look at this more wizard tech solution? And and that's just where most people are right now. Yeah, that's the
0: dominant cultural paradigm is Mm -hmm. we've we've gone into wizardry, for sure. Yes. question about that. you know, back when Silent Spring was written, we, I think there was more, you know, vote was more in vogue. There was yeah. a little bit more concern about the wizardry and the impact it would have. And now we are 100% in wizardry.
1: Yeah. And the problem is, you know, everyone's just sort of hoping that more rabbits will be pulled out of the hat, but we don't know for sure.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I highly recommend this book. This is Charles Mann who mm-hmm. wrote 1491 and 1493, which uh, if, if anyone has read those books about, uh, it totally changed our view on how the new world was discovered and, and colonized uh, and mm-hmm. what was here when those people arrived, uh, which is much different than what was previously believed. He's a fantastic writer. And this is, uh, I think, one of the most um, compelling views on on where we are as a society now and what our future might hold. So highly recommend it. G- getting back to the topic. I mean, that's, that's obviously germane and, and relevant here, but I want to talk about a few other proposals that are mm-hmm. being floated around here, which are, you know, again, if you accept what, what we've talked about here in another podcast that are off base, but the, the meat tax, you know, that there's been a lot of enthusiasm for this because there's some research that, you know, beverage tax, soda taxes have, have been effective in terms of reducing consumption. So uh, this is now something that's being seriously proposed and that Eat Lancet, you know, I think that's part of the agenda of the Eat Lancet paper and authors and reporters.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and and actually they release another paper just on um, Sunday night of this week that goes even more strongly into the meat tax. And I mean, I think the, the goal is to make it, you know, basically impossible to eat meat, right. Moving forward. And effectively, you know, I've looked at the models or there was a good paper that, that looked at what would happen, you know, just kind of projected out like what might happen in this situation and actually red meat consumption wouldn't go down at all. And it, it basically is just a poor tax is what this is. And, you know, when you look at, I actually took a picture, I had to run into a a typical grocery store and, and pick something up one time and I noticed the, the shopping cart of the person in front of me and it was, soda and donuts and whoopie pies and all stuff like yeah. that. But uh, her deli meat and her bacon were actually the most nutrient dense things in her cart. Yeah.
0: So that would be encouraging even less healthy choices and people who are of limited economic means. And this, you know, you mentioned this in the beginning about the the private jet, uh, you know, people mm-hmm. founding the study and you, you, Brought it up in your article, like there, there really is a class, classist kind of thing that that's happening here that's not (laughs) a part of the popular narrative. Because if we really wanted to reduce carbon footprint, you pointed out a meta analysis that suggested that uh, doing things like avoiding one round trip Mm transatlantic flight, uh, you know, more of a car free lifestyle, having less one less child in an industrialized nation would have. By far, bigger impact than you know reducing your consumption of beef,
1: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or, and, or, or yeah, or you're changing your diet in any way. Um, and
0: who's doing a lot of round trip transatlantic flying? You know, people mm-hmm. who are at a certain socioeconomic level, mm-hmm. and so yeah, a lot of these proposals are like, it, "Let me continue to live my carbon emitting lifestyle." And then let's introduce changes that won't affect that, but will actually will impact people who are poor and in, in a really adverse way without really, you know, changing anything, you know, me having to change anything as, as a privileged person.
1: Right. And I mean, in order to do vegan, right, you kind of do need to be a celebrity or an uber rich person that, um, you know, if there is a way to do vegan, right. But I mean, to to there's a lot of food prep involved. There's a lot of time involved. There's a lot of time spent eating. Um, yeah. you just have chewing. to eat a lot chewing, right? Like you have to, uh, your typical person that maybe gets to 15 minute breaks a day is, is not going to be able to chew <laughs> enough food, um, or have a staff that can, you know, make the cashew cream to, to make the, you know, all the, yeah.
0: Or it's shop uh, at the, you know, buy buy the cashew cream for $9.49, mm-hmm. you know, for a, 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 a half pint or whatever it is. Right,
1: mm-hmm. right. I mean, the this um, film project I'm working on, we've done a lot of filming in um, Indiana, rural Indiana, and I see what these folks, you know, have as options for stores um, on limited budgets and what they're buying, and honestly... Processed food uh, processed meats are like sausages that are precooked are a lot easier for them to eat and are honestly the most nutrient dense thing that they're eating because they're not doing a whole lot of uh scratch cooking they don't have a lot of time or energy at the end of the day, so you know when when life is really hard and you're working really hard, you don't have the privilege to push away something nutrient dense like meat
0: absolutely. So let's talk a little bit about the film. I know it's gone through a lot of iterations mm-hmm. and, and some some wins and some challenges. So, you know, tell me, let, let's start with a little bit of the the idea and the inspiration behind it, um, why we both feel that this is important to to get out there. And then, you know, where you're, maybe a little update where you're at, what, you, what you're needing, what would be helpful. We have a lot of folks who are listening who I know want to be a part of this movement in some way. And I can you know, I'm often asked by people who are not necessarily in the health field, you know, people who are not nutritionists or functional medicine practitioners or anything like, how can I help? How can I get involved? How can I use my existing skills or connections or resources to, you know, to, to move this forward? So, um, you know, let's, let's, let's imagine what, what we kind of help we, we need or could, could be useful to move this forward. And, and, you know, who knows who's out there listening.
1: Yeah. Uh, so I was halfway through writing a book on this subject, on the nutritional environmental and ethical case for meat when yet another vegan film came out about a year and a half ago. And I was like, if this guy can make a movie, I can make a movie. <laughs> um, yeah. And so that's kind of how it all started. I, uh, did a crowdfunder that was pretty successful, and we got rolling. Um, at the time, the project was called Kale versus Cow, um, and we started filming some of these nutrition stories. We hooked up with a doctor who has some amazing clinical trials and is doing really good work in in um, a pretty rural part of of the Midwest, um, conveniently Corn Country. But there's also uh, farmers who are, you know, plowing in their corn and, and uh, turning it back to grass. So there's some really great stories happening there. And some of the feedback I got from the title, Kale versus Cow, was that, you know, this sounds like another vegan film, or it sounds like I'm against kale, which, as you know, I'm not <laughs> kale, but, you know, I think folks maybe that don't know me as well were just had these misperceptions, and the name was a little bit of a hang-up for them, so uh, we went back to the drawing board a little bit and changed the title to Sacred Cow, um, which is, I think, works really nicely also because there's that double meaning of Sacred Cow. because the vilification of beef is just so embedded in our, yes. um, and I mean, even when I was going through my um, graduate program in dietetics, red meat is not okay. Like it's just yeah. not, even yeah. though in, you know, biochem, it's totally fine. If you just look at it from a, from an objective scientific perspective.
0: Yeah.
1: And the project has also transformed from a uh, feature film into a docu series because we, felt that uh, it's a more digestible way, like literally to um, to get this information across. And there's also more that we wanted to cover that we didn't feel would fit into the narrative yeah. of one film. Yeah, And so we were now looking at a multi- Part docu-series, uh, still addressing m- mostly the nutritional, environmental, and ethical aspects of, um, the reason why we need animals in our food system. Um, I'm also very interested in sort of the anthropology of how meat became such a polarizing topic today and, and how people identify their whole being around how much meat they consume in their diet, right? The right? flexitarian, vegan, whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I still am working on the book. So um, as you know, Rob is is the co-author on, on the book project I'm working on, and he's the co-executive producer on the film project. But, you know, the funding has been a little bit of a challenge. We, I don't know that people really get how important this is. And, you know, I think, you know, it's like one of the reasons why, you know, like the Unitarian Church is not funded well is because it's like trying to extract money out of atheists is a hard thing, right? When people are super passionately committed and and religiously committed, like vegans, where it's it's like their religion. They'll yeah, you know, passionately fund things. But then when people are kind of cool with everything and they're eating meat, they're like, yeah, got my health under control now. That's great. And you know, if vegans don't want to eat meat, fine. That's more for me. That's that's really kind of the attitude I'm running into a little bit. And so um,
0: yeah, people are less identified with it, and, and, which right. is which is good in, in good. a certain way, but not as good when you're trying to raise money for a movie like this. And, right? Yeah. Know, I, I think the other part of it is I don't know that people really perceive the threat fully yet. You know, it's right. like 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 you just said, they're like, if someone wants to be vegan, fine. No, you know, no, uh, it's no skin off my back, and it's not going to hurt me. So there's no pressing need to fun to film about this because, um, you know, who cares if someone's a vegan? Well, yeah. uh, On an individual level, you might say that even though we could argue that you you should care if someone chooses an an approach that's, you know, in in many cases likely to make them nutrient deficient. But yes, each person, of course, has the right to choose their own um, Mm -hmm. approach. And, you know, I don't go around trying to proselytize and convert vegans to eating animal foods unless they ask me what I th- they think I should do if they come right. to see me as a patient. But yeah. this isn't just about individual choice here because as we know, like we talked about the meat tax proposition and this is going to affect food policy. Uh, or it's already affected food policy in mm-hmm. the US and around the world, which then will affect schools and what happens at schools, which influences our children and the choices that they make. You know my daughter's seven and a half, and she comes home with some really interesting things that she 's heard from other kids and even teachers at school and she and she doesn 't go to a a typical school so but this is is everywhere you know
1: mm-hmm. yeah exactly yeah and it's, yeah there's a lot of schools now eliminating meat for health, and I think a lot of parents are kind of feeling a little worried about meat consumption and so maybe they're thinking well at least they're getting a healthy meal at school right um and 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 so that's that's concerning to me because for a lot of kids this is their most nutrient dense meal of their day and to blame it on meat is just wrong um you know and i i kept uh you know telling folks this is coming and meat tax is coming and i i for a while I was feeling like maybe i'm just nuts and maybe i'm making all this up and i don't know but then of course it's it is it is really coming right the land set paper is here meat tax is being discussed um, we've got la now is trying to force restaurants and you know lax to provide um, you know, to tell private businesses to to provide vegan entrees. We've got um, Berkeley with uh, meatless Mondays now at, at all work. city meetings. <laughs> yeah, we work exactly. Uh, uh, there's airlines now that are are eliminating red meat, and so this is coming at us from our institute. Our Clinicians, our universities. We're hearing this from the World Health Organization. We're hearing this from business, from the media. Constant films. There's more coming out this year. I think I just sent you um, another um, one that's that's on its way out. That I'm pretty concerned about because it actually, you know, has people with MD behind their name, and and nobody is pushing back, and people are just taking this really lightly, and so yeah, anything that folks can do to to help me get this off the ground. Um, you know, I, I want to come out and and feature you, Chris. And um, I've got a lot of really great experts in both the sustainability and um, health space that are very strongly feel that bread meat is important to our food system.
0: Yeah. And, uh, you know, the, the reality is that a film or in a docu-series can make a huge impact that, you know, even you can't
1: do with a book. I know it
0: doesn't work. I mean, like I, I, I've written a 400 plus page book with all the science that you need to, you know, I think get clear that animal foods should be part of our diet in addition to plant foods, but you know, how many people are going to read a 400 page book? Not, not that many. And um, there 's still something about film that makes it a very viral medium it 's more accessible uh docu series is a is an increasingly popular f- uh format as you said it 's you know it 's easier to cover the the wide range of topics that you need to hit on for this and it's it 's a format that has been used for vegan and other types of films and or or you know media. And uh, it's something that's just really easy to share with uh, people are more likely to sit down at night and watch an episode of of this than they are to read a book.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. And this is pretty dense material, but if I can just show people what a healthy ecosystem looks like and how cattle raised in the right way, you know, what what that looks like compared to a 2,000-acre field of soy being grown yeah. for lab meat, I think that those are really powerful visuals.
0: And, absolutely. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I agree with that 100%. So if someone's listening to this and you know, the alarm has been raised in their mind and they're now aware of the, the real risk here to our families and communities and they want to get involved in some way, how, how, what's the best way for them to do that?
1: So I have more information and um, I'm taking donations on sustainabledishcom forward slash film. And for any, you know, better meat companies or, or folks that want to get involved in a bigger way. Um, folks can just message me directly through my site and um, we're working with a few better meat companies and other large donors and foundations, but we, we still need to uh, you know, these are expensive and, you know, there are some inexpensive ways of making docu series, but in order for us to really get on, you know, the mainstream media channels like Netflix uh, mm-hmm. we have to do something that's beautiful and, you know, has a high production value and, you know, isn't a $50,000 handheld camera project and so while the, the budget isn't um exorbitant it's certainly higher than some of the other more budget docu series that have been coming out and and that's largely because i'm really tired of going to um high schools and doing damage control when they show these vegan propaganda films because yeah. that's what's happening right now
0: yeah Absolutely. And will continue to happen. As you pointed out, there's um, the momentum there is is only building. So, um, you know, we we need to, I think, step up to the plate.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Thank you for doing this work, Diana. I really appreciate your advocacy and um, passion for this and it shows through in everything that you do. And I hope for all of you listening that this has been maybe a bit of a wake-up call and and you have a little more perspective on what's going on behind the scenes and like more out in the open now. I, yeah. I, more and more, especially with this E. Lancet paper, uh, and you see that science is, is not objective and dispassionate in many cases, um, but actually quite agenda-driven and that there are often... Interests a- aligned behind those agendas that that may not represent your interests, like in, you know global food companies that want to sell more of their processed and refined products. So mm-hmm. uh, none of us are not impacted by this in some way. And if you have children and family members who you know are are getting exposed to all of this material, it's really important to have a counterpoint that we can offer that that is um, well researched and really hits on the most important issues and, and people can change their mind as the, I mean, your story that you shared with the publisher of the China study
1: Mm -hmm.
0: um, was really uh, revealing. I mean, to his credit, to whoever the, that publisher editor was, to his credit, like he was able to take in that information and, and uh, open his mind and, and give this a chance. So Mm -hmm. I, and, and I, we both of course know many people that that's happened with. I have lots of, Patients Lots of readers and listeners who were vegan and vegetarian at one point, I was vegan and vegetarian at one mm-hmm. point, as everybody knows who 's listened to the show for a while and it was through exposure to research and information like what we 're talking about on the show and what you plan to present on on the film that actually changed their minds so because I think that may also be part of the resistance in some cases, like for raising money with this film mm-hmm. is like the idea that people are just not going to change their minds it, that it's, you know, we can't really make an impact, but I, uh, I, I don't agree with that. I think we can make a huge impact and we already have, and we just need to um, scale it up so that it can reach more people.
1: Mm-hmm. I agree.
0: So sustainable slash film. Mm-hmm. We will also put some of the links um, to the podcasts and articles that we mentioned, the critiques of the of Eat Lancet, um, Marty Kendall's, and also yours, Diana. And then, uh, if you want that big storehouse of information that I put together for the Rogan Show, with, which has articles on nutrient density and you know meat and the effects of meat and and um, carbohydrate macronutrients, uh, you know. Ton of stuff. That's uh, chriscressor.com slash Rogan. So thanks everybody for listening. Thank you, Diana.
1: Thank and you so much for having me. I really appreciate it, Chris. And thanks for all your support ever since I first met you.
0: It's my pleasure. And I hope we can, um, with this podcast, um, move things forward a little bit more quickly and, and get this out there because it really needs to be seen. So thanks everybody for listening. And please do continue to send in your questions to com slash podcast question. And I'll talk to you next time. That's the end of this episode of Revolution Health Radio. If you appreciate the show and want to help me create a healthier and happier world, please head over to iTunes and leave us a review. They really do make a difference. If you'd like to ask a question for me to answer on a future episode, you can do that at chriscressor.com slash podcast question. You can also leave a suggestion for someone you'd like me to interview there. If you're on social media, you can follow me at twitter.com slash chriscressor or facebook.com slash chriscressorlac. I post a lot of articles and research that I do throughout the week there that never makes it to the blog or podcast. So it's a great way to stay abreast of the latest developments. Thanks so much for listening. Talk to you next time.